The King of Schnorrers by Israel Zangwill, read by Adrian Pretzelis, Santa Rosa, California, April 2007. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The King of Schnorrers by Israel Zangwill. This epigraph precedes Chapter One. That all men are beggars, tis very plain to see, though some are of lowly and some of high degree. Your ministers of state will say they never will allow that kings from subjects beg. But that, you know, is all bow-wow. Bow-wow-wow, fall-lol, etc. Old Play Chapter 1 Showing How the Wicked Philanthropist was turned into a fish-porter. In the days when Lord George Gordon became a Jew and was suspected of insanity, when, out of respect for the prophecies, England denied her Jews every civil right except that of paying taxes, when the Gentleman's Magazine had ill words for the infidel alien, when Jewish marriages were invalid and bequests for Hebrew colleges void, when a prophet prophesying Primrose Day would have been set in the stocks, though Pitt inclined his private ear to Benjamin Goldsmith's views on the foreign loans, in those days when Tevel Schiff was rabbi in Israel, and Dr. de Fulk, the master of the Tetragrammaton, saint and Kabbalistic conjurer, flourished in Wellcoast Square, and the composer of the Death of Nelson was a choir-boy in the great synagogue, Joseph Grobstock, pillar of the same, emerged one afternoon into the spring sunshine at the fag-end of the departing stream of worshippers. In his hand was a large canvas bag, and in his eye a twinkle. There had been a special service of prayer and thanksgiving for the happy restoration of His Majesty's health, and the cantor had interceded tunefully with Providence on behalf of Royal George and our most amiable Queen Charlotte. The congregation was large and fashionable, far more so than when only a heavenly sovereign was concerned, and so the courtyard was thronged with a string of schnorrers, beggars awaiting the exit of the audience, much like the vestibule of the Opera House is lined by footmen. They were a motley crew, with tangled beards and long hair that fell in curls, if not the curls of the period, but the gabardines of the German ghettos had been in most cases exchanged for the knee-breeches and many-buttoned jacket of the Londoner. When the clothes one has brought from the continent wear out, one must needs adopt the attire of one's superiors, or be reduced to buying. Many bore staves, and had their loins girded with coloured handkerchiefs, as though ready at any moment to return from the captivity. Their woebegone air was achieved almost entirely by not washing. It owed little to nature, to adventitious aids in the shape of deformities. The merest sprinkling boasted of physical afflictions, and none exposed sores like the lasers of Italy, or contortions like the cripples of Constantinople. Such crude methods are eschewed in the fine art of schnorring. A green shade might denote a weakness of sight, but the stone-blind man bore no braggart placard. His infirmity was an old established concern well known to the public, and conferring upon the proprietor a definite status in the community. 
He was no anonymous atom, such as drifts blindly through Christendom, vagrant and apologetic. Rarest of all sights in this pageantry of Jewish pauperdom was the hollow trouser-leg, or the empty sleeve, or the wooden limb fulfilling either, and pushing out a proclamatory peg. When the pack of Schnorrers caught sight of Joseph Grobstock, they fell upon him, full cry blessing him. He, nothing surprised, brushed pompously through the benedictions, though the twinkle in his eye became a roguish gleam. Outside the iron gates, where the throng was thickest, and where some elegant chariots that had brought worshippers from distant Hackney were preparing to start, he came to a standstill, surrounded by the clamouring Schnorrers, and dipped his hand slowly and ceremoniously into the bag. There was a moment of breathless expectation among the beggars, and Joseph Grobstock had a moment of exquisite consciousness of importance as he stood there swelling in the sunshine. There was no middle class to speak of in the eighteenth-century jury. The world was divided into rich and poor, and the rich were very, very rich, and the poor very, very poor, so that everyone knew his station. Joseph Grobstock was satisfied with that in which it had pleased God to place him. He was a jovial, heavy-jowled creature, whose clean-shaven chin was doubling, and he was habituated like the person of the first respectability in a beautiful blue body-coat with a row of big yellow buttons, the frilled shirt-front, high collar of the very newest fashion, and copious white neckerchief showed off the massive fleshiness of the red throat. His hat was of the Quaker pattern, and his head did not fail of the periwig and the pigtail, the latter being heretical in name only. What Joseph Grobstock drew from the bag was a small white paper packet, and his sense of humour led him to place it on the hand farthest from his nose. For it was a broad humour, not a subtle. It enabled him to extract pleasure from seeing a fellow-mortal's hat rollick in the wind, but did little to alleviate the chase for his own. His jokes clapped you on the back. They did not tickle delicately. Such was the man who now became the complacent signature of all eyes, even of those that had no appeal in them, as soon as the principle of his eleemosynary operations had broken on the crowd. The first Schnorrer, feverishly tearing open his package, had found a florin, and, as by electricity, all except the blind beggar was aware that Joseph Grobstock was distributing florins. The distributor partook of the general consciousness, and his lips twitched. Silently he dipped again into the bag, and selecting the hand nearest, put a second white package into it. A wave of joy brightened the grimy face, to change instantly to one of horror. "'You've made a mistake! You've given me a penny!' cried the beggar. "'Keep it for your honesty!' replied Joseph Grobstock imperturbably, and affected not to enjoy the laughter of the rest. The third mendicant ceased laughing when he discovered that the fold-on-fold fold of paper sheltered a tiny sixpence. It was now obvious that the great man was distributing prize-packets, and the excitement of the piebald crowd grew momentarily. Grobstock went on, dipping lynx-eyed against second applications. One of the few pieces of gold in the lucky bag fell to the solitary lame man, who danced his joy on his sound leg 
while the poor blind man pocketed his half-penny unconscious of ill-fortune and merely wondering why the coin came swathed in paper by this time grobstock could control his face no longer and the last episodes of the lottery were played to the accompaniment of a broad grin keen and complex was his enjoyment there was not only the general surprise at this novel feat of arms there were the special surprises of detail written on face after face as it flashed or fell or frowned in congruity with the contents of the envelope and for undercurrent a delicious hubbub of interjections and benedictions a stretching and withdrawing of palms and a swift shifting of figures that made the scene a farrago of excitements so that the broad grin was one of gratification as well as amusement and part of the gratification sprang from a real kindliness of heart for grobstock was an easy-going man with whom the world had gone easy the schnorrers were exhausted before the packets but the philanthropist was in no anxiety to be rid of the remnant. Closing the mouth of the considerably lightened bag and clutching it tightly by the throat, and recomposing his face to gravity, he moved slowly down the street like a stately treasure-ship, flecked by the sunlight. His way led towards Goodman's Fields, where his mansion was situate, and he knew that the fine weather would bring out schnorrers enough and indeed he had not gone many paces before he met a figure he did not remember having seen before leaning against a post at the head of the narrow passage which led to bevis marks was a tall black-bearded turbaned personage a first glance of whom showed him to be of the true tribe mechanically joseph grobstock's hand went to the lucky bag and he drew out a neatly folded packet and tendered it to the stranger the stranger received the gift graciously and opened it gravely the philanthropist loitering awkwardly to mark the issue suddenly the dark face became a thundercloud the eyes flashed lightning an evil spirit in your ancestors bones hissed the stranger from between his flashing teeth did you come here to insult me pardon a thousand pardons stammered the magnate wholly taken back i fancied you were a, a poor man and therefore you came to insult me no i thought to help you murmured grobstock turning from red to scarlet was it possible he had foisted his charity on an undeserving millionaire no through all the clouds of his own confusion and the recipient's anger the figure of a schnorrer loomed too plain for mistake none but a schnorrer would wear a home-made turban issue of a black cap crossed with a white kerchief none but a schnorrer would unbutton the first nine buttons of his waistcoat or if this relaxation were due to the warmth of the weather counteract it by wearing an overgarment especially one as heavy as a blanket with buttons the size of compasses and flaps reaching nearly to his shoe-buckles even though its length were only congruous with that of his undercoat, which had already reached the bottoms of his knee-breeches. Finally, who but a schnorrer would wear this overcoat cloak-wise with dangling sleeves full of armless suggestion from a side-view? Quite apart from the shabbiness of the snuff-coloured fabric, it was amply evident that the wearer did not dress by rule or measure. 
yet the disproportions of his attire did but enhance the picturesqueness of a personality that would be striking even in a bath, though it was not likely to be seen there. The beard was jet black, sweeping and unkempt, and ran up his cheeks to meet the raven hair, so that the vivid face was framed in black. It was a long, tapering face with sanguine lips, gleaming at the heart of a black bush. The eyes were large and lampant, set in deep sockets under black arching eyebrows. The nose was long and coptic, the brow low but broad, with straggling wisps of hair protruding from beneath the turban. His right hand grasped a plain ashen staff. Worthy Joseph Grobstock found the figure of the mendicant only too impressive. He shrank uneasily before the indignant eyes. I meant only to help you, he repeated. And this is how one helps a brother in Israel, said the Schnorrer, throwing the paper contemptuously into the philanthropist's face. It struck him on the bridge of the nose, but impinged so mildly that he felt at once what was the matter. The packet was empty. The Schnorrer had drawn a blank, the only one the good-natured man had put into the bag. The Schnorrer's audacity sobered Joseph Grobstock completely. It might have angered him to chastise the fellow, but it did not. His better nature prevailed. He began to feel shamefaced, fumbled sheepishly in his pocket for a crown, then hesitated, as fearing this peace-offering would not altogether suffice with so rare a spirit, and that he owed the stranger more than silver. An apology, to wit. He proceeded honestly to pay it, but with a maladroit manner, as one unaccustomed to the currency. "'You are an impertinent rascal,' he said, "'but I dare say you feel hurt. Let me assure you I did not know there was nothing in the packet. I did not, indeed.' "'Then your steward has robbed me,' exclaimed the Schnorrer excitedly. "'You let him make up the packets, and he has stolen my money. The thief, the transgressor, thrice cursed who robs the poor.' "'You don't understand,' interrupted the magnate meekly. "'I make up the package myself.' "'Then why did you say you did not know what was in them? Go, you mock my misery!' "'Nay, hear me out,' urged Grobstock, desperately. "'In some I placed gold, in the greater number silver, in a few copper, in one alone nothing. That is the one you have drawn. It is your misfortune.' "'My misfortune?' echoed the Schnorrer scornfully. "'It is your misfortune. I did not even draw it. The Holy One, blessed be he, has punished you for your heartless jesting with the poor, making a sport for yourself of their misfortunes, even as the Philistines sported with Samson. The good deed you might have put to your account by a gratuity to me, God has taken from you. He has declared you unworthy of achieving righteousness through me. Go your way, murderer!" "'Murderer!' repeated the philanthropist, bewildered by this harsh view of his actions. "'Yes, murderer. Stands it not in the Talmud that he who shames another is as one who spills his blood? Have you not put me to shame? If any one had witnessed your almsgiving, would he not have laughed in my beard? 
The pillar of the synagogue felt as if his paunch were shrinking. But, but the others, he murmured deprecatingly, I have not shed their blood. Have I not given freely of my hard-earned gold? For your own diversion, reported the Schnorrer implacably. But what says the Midrash? There is a wheel rolling in the world. Not he who is rich today is rich tomorrow, but that one he brings up, and this one he brings down, as it is said in the seventy-fifth psalm. Therefore lift not up your horn on high, nor speak with a stiff neck. He towered above the unhappy capitalist like an ancient prophet denouncing a swollen monarch. The poor man put his hand involuntarily to his high collar, as if to explain away his apparent arrogance, but in reality because he was not breathing easily under the Schnorrer's attack. "'You are an uncharitable man,' he panted hotly, driven to a line of defence he had not anticipated. "'I did it not from wantonness, but for faith in heaven. I know well that God sits turning a wheel. Therefore I did not presume to turn it by myself. Did I not let Providence select who should have the silver and who the gold, and who the copper and who the emptiness? Besides, God alone knows who really needs my assistance. I have made him my almoner. I have cast my burden on the Lord." "'Epicurean!' shrieked the Schnorrer. "'Blasphemer! Is it thus you would palter with sacred texts? Do you forget what the next verse says? Bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days. Shame on you, you a gabi of the great synagogue. You see, I know you, Joseph Grubstock. Has not the beadle of your synagogue boasted to me that you would have given him a guinea for brushing your splatter-dashes? Would you think of offering him a packet? Nay, it is the poor that are trodden upon they whose merits are in excess of those of beadles. But the Lord will find others to take up his loans, for he who hath pity on the poor lendeth to the Lord. You are no true son of Israel." The Schnorrer's tirade was long enough to allow Grobstock to recover his dignity and his breath. "'If you really knew me, you would know that the Lord is considerably in my debt,' he rejoined quietly. When you next would discuss me, speak with the psalmsmen, not the beadle. Never have I rejected the needy. Even now, though you have been insolent and uncharitable, I am ready to befriend you if you are in want." "'If I am in want,' repeated the Schnorrer scornfully, "'is there anything I do not want?' "'You are married?' "'You correct me. Wife and children are the only things I do not lack." "'No pauper does,' quoth Grobstock, with a twinkle of restored humour. "'No,' asserted the Schnorrer sternly. "'The poor man has the fear of heaven. He obeys the law and the commandments. He marries while he is young, and his spouse is not cursed with barrenness. It is the rich man who transgresses the judgment, who delays to come under the canopy.' "'Ah, well, here is a guinea, in the name of my wife,' broke in Grobstock laughingly. Or stay, since you do not brush splatter-dashes, here is another." "'In the name of my wife,' rejoined the Schnorrer with dignity, "'I thank you.' "'Thank me in your own name,' said Grobstock. "'I mean, tell it to me.' 
I'm Manasseh Bueno Barzillai Azevedo da Costa, he answered simply. A Sephardi, exclaimed the philanthropist. Is it not written on my face, even as it is written on yours, that you are a Tedasco? This is the first time I have taken gold from one of your lineage. Oh, indeed, murmured Grobstock, beginning to feel small again. Yes, are we not far richer than your community? What need have I to take the good deeds away from my own people? They have too few opportunities for beneficence as it is, being so many of them wealthy, brokers and West India merchants, and— But, but I, too, am a financier and an East India director, Grobstock reminded him. Maybe, but your community is yet young and struggling. Your rich men are as the good men in Sodom for multitude. You are the immigrants of yesterday, refugees from the ghettos of Russia and Poland and Germany. But we, as you are aware, have been established here for generations. In the peninsula our ancestors graced the courts of kings and controlled the purse-strings of princes. In Holland we held the empery of trade. Ours have been the poets and scholars in Israel. You cannot expect that we should recognize your rabble which prejudices us in the eyes of England. We made the name of Jew honorable, you degrade it. You are as the mixed multitude which came up with our forefathers out of Egypt. Nonsense, said Grobstock sharply. All Israel are brethren. Esau was the brother of Israel, answered Manasseh sententiously. But you will excuse me if I go a-marketing. It is such a pleasure to handle gold. There was a note of wistful pathos in the latter remark, which took off from the edge of the former, and touched Joseph with compunction for bandying words with a hungry man, whose loved ones were probably starving patiently at home. Certainly. Uh, haste away, he said kindly. I shall see you again, said Manasseh, with a valedictory wave of his hand, and digging his staff into the cobblestones, he journeyed forward without bestowing a single backward glance upon his benefactor. Grobstock's road took him to Petticoat Lane in the wake of Manasseh. He had no intention of following him, but did not see why he should change his route for fear of the Schnorrer, more especially as Manasseh did not look back. By this time he had become conscious again of the bag he carried, but he had no heart to proceed with the fun. He felt conscience-stricken, and had recourse to his pockets instead in his progress through the narrow, jostling market-street, where he scarcely ever bought anything personally save fish and good deeds. He was a connoisseur in both. Today he picked up many a good deed cheap, paying pennies for articles he did not take away shoe-latches and cane-strings, barley-sugar and butter-cakes. Suddenly, through a chink in an opaque mass of human beings, he caught sight of a small attractive salmon on a fishmonger's slab. His eye glittered, his chops watered. He elbowed his way to the vendor, whose eye caught a corresponding gleam, and whose finger went to his hat in respectful greeting. "'Good afternoon, Jonathan.' said Grobstock jovially. I'll take that salmon there. How much? Pardon me, said a voice in the crowd. I am just bargaining for it. Grobstock started. It was the voice of Manasseh. Stop that nonsense, da Costa, responded the fishmonger. You know you won't give me my price. It's the only one I have left, he added, half for the benefit of Grobstock. 
I wouldn't let it go for under a couple of guineas. Here's your money, cried Manasseh, with patient contempt, and sent two gold coins spinning musically upon the slab. In the crowd, sensation. In Grobstock's breast, astonishment, indignation, and bitterness. He was struck momentarily dumb, his face purpled, the scales of the salmon shone like a celestial vision that was fading from him by his own stupidity. "'I'll take that salmon, Jonathan,' he repeated, spluttering. Three guineas!' "'Pardon me,' repeated Manasseh. "'It is too late. This is not an auction.' He seized the fish by the tail. Grobstock turned upon him, goaded to the point of apoplexy. You, he cried, you, you rogue! How dare you buy salmon? Rogue yourself, reported Manasseh. Would you have me steal salmon? You have stolen my money, knave, rascal! Murderer, shedder of blood, did you not give me the money as a free-will offering for the good of your wife's soul? I call upon you before all these witnesses to confess yourself a slanderer. Slanderer, indeed! I repeat, you are a knave and a jackanapes. You, a pauper, a beggar with a wife and children. How can you have the face to go and spend two guineas, two whole guineas, all you have in the world, on a mere luxury like salmon? Manasseh elevated his arched eyebrows. If I do not buy salmon when I have two guineas, he answered quietly, when shall I buy salmon? As you say, it is a luxury very dear. It is only on rare occasions like this that my means run to it." There was a dignified pathos about the rebuke that mollified the magnate. He felt that there was reason in the beggar's point of view, though it was a point to which he would never let himself have risen unaided. But righteous anger still simmered in him. He felt vaguely that there was something to be said in reply, though he also felt that even if he knew what it was, it would have to be said in a lower key to correspond with Manasseh's transition from the high pitch of the opening passages. Not finding the requisite repartee, he was silent. "'In the name of my wife,' went on Manasseh, swinging the salmon by the tail, I ask you to clear my good name, which you have bespattered in the presence of my very tradesmen. Again I call upon you to confess before these witnesses that you gave me the money yourself in charity. Come, do you deny it?" "'No, I, I don't deny it,' murmured Grobstock, unable to understand why he appeared to himself like a whipped cur, or how what should have been a boast had been transformed into an apology to a beggar. "'In the name of my wife, I thank you,' said Manasseh. "'She loves salmon and fries with unction. And now, since you have no further use for that bag of yours, I will relieve you of its burden by taking my salmon home in it.' He took the canvas bag from the limp grasp of the astonished Tedesco, and dropped the fish in. The head protruded surveying the scene with a cold, glassy, ironical eye. "'Good afternoon, all,' said the Schnorrer courteously. Uh, "'One moment,' called out the philanthropist, when he found his tongue. "'The bag is not empty. There are a number of packets still left in it.' "'So much the better,' said Manasseh soothingly. "'You will be saved from the temptation to continue shedding the blood of the poor. 
and I shall be saved from spending all your bounty upon salmon, an extravagance you were right to deplore. But, but, began Grobstock. No buts, protested Manasseh, waving his bag deprecatingly. You were right. You admitted you were wrong before. Shall I be less magnanimous now? In the presence of all these witnesses I acknowledge the justice of your rebuke. I ought not to have wasted two guineas on one fish. It was not worth it. Come over here, and I will tell you something." He walked out of earshot of the bystanders, turning down a side alley opposite the stall, and beckoned with his salmon-bag. The East India director had no course but to obey. He would probably have followed him in any case, to have it out with him, but now he had a humiliating sense of being at the Schnorrer's beck and call. "'Well, what more have you got to say?' he demanded gruffly. "'I wish to save you money in future,' said the beggar in low, confidential tones. "'That Jonathan is a son of the separation. The salmon is not worth two guineas. No, on my soul. If you had not come up, I should have got it for twenty-five shillings. Jonathan struck on the price when he thought you should buy it. I trust you will not let me be the loser by your arrival, and that if I should find less than seventeen shillings in the bag, you will make it up to me." The bewildered financier felt his grievance disappearing as by sleight of hand. Manasseh added winningly, "'I know you are a gentleman capable of behaving as finely as any Sephardi. This handsome compliment completed the Schnorrer's victory, which was sealed by his saying, "'And so I should not like you to have it on your soul that you had done a poor man out of a few shillings.' Grobstock could only remark meekly, "'You will find more than seventeen shillings in that bag.' "'Ah! Why were you born a Tedesco?' cried Manasseh ecstatically. "'Do you know what I have a mind to do? To come and be your Sabbath guest. Yes. I will take supper with you next Friday, and we will welcome the bride, the Holy Sabbath, together. Never before have I sat at the table of a Tedesco, but you—you you are a man after my own heart. Your soul is a son of Spain. Next Friday at six, do not forget." "'But—but but I do not have Sabbath guests,' faltered Grobstock. "'Not have Sabbath guests?' No, no, I will not believe you are of the sons of Belial, whose table is spread only for the rich, who do not proclaim your equality with the poor even once a week. It is your fine nature that would hide its benefactions. Do not I, Manasseh Bueno Barzillai Azevedo da Costa, have at my Sabbath table every week Yankala ben Yitzoch, a Pole, and if I have a Tedesco at my table, why should I draw the line there? Why should I not permit you, a Tedosco, to return the hospitality to me, a Sephardi? At six, then, I know your house well. It is an elegant building that does credit to your tastes. Do not be uneasy. I shall not fail to be punctual. Adios. This time he waved his stick fraternally and stalked down a turning. For an instant Grobstock stood glued to the spot crushed by a sense of the inevitable. Then a horrible thought occurred to him. Easy-going man as he was, he might put up with the visitation of Manasseh. But then he had a wife, and what was worse, a livery-servant. How could he expect a livery-servant to tolerate such a guest? 
He might fly from the town on Friday evening, but that would necessitate troublesome explanations. And Manasseh would come again the next Friday. That was certain. Manasseh would be like grim death. His coming, though it might be postponed, was inevitable. Ah, oh, that was too terrible. At all costs he must revoke the invitation. Placed between Scylla and Charybdis, between Manasseh and his manservant, he felt he could sooner face the former. "'Da Costa!' he called out in agony. "'Da Costa!' The Schnorrer turned, and then Grobstock found he was mistaken in imagining he preferred to face Da Costa. "'You called me?' "'Yes,' faltered the East India director, and stood paralysed. "'What can I do for you?' said Manasseh graciously. "'Would, would you mind very much if I—if I, if I asked you—' not to come was in his throat but stuck there if you asked me said manasseh encouragingly ah uh, to accept some of my clothes flashed grobstock with a sudden inspiration after all manasseh was a fine figure of a man if he could get him to doff those musty garments of his he might almost pass him off as a prince of the blood foreign by his beard at any rate he could be certain of making him acceptable to the livery servant. He breathed freely again at this happy solution of the situation. "'Your cast-off clothes?' asked Manasseh. Grobstock was not sure whether the tone was supercilious or eager. He hastened to explain, "'No, no, not quite that. Second-hand things uh, that I'm still wearing. My old clothes were already given away at Passover to Simeon the Psalms man. These are comparatively new." "'Then I would beg you to excuse me,' said Manasseh, with a stately wave of the bag. "'Oh, but, but why not?' murmured Grobstock, his blood running cold again. "'I cannot,' said Manasseh, shaking his head. "'But they will just about fit you,' pleaded the philanthropist. "'That makes it all the more absurd for you to give them to Simeon the Psalms man,' said Manasseh sternly. "'Still, since he is your clothes receiver, I could not think of interfering with his office. It is not etiquette. I am surprised you should ask me if I should mind. Of course I should mind. I should mind very much.' "'But he is not my clothes receiver,' protested Grobstock. "'Last Passover was the very first time I gave them to him, because my cousin, Hyman Rothstein, who used to have them, has died.' "'But surely he considers himself your cousin's heir,' said Manasseh. "'He expects all your old clothes henceforth.' "'No, I gave him no such promise.' Manasseh hesitated. "'Well, in that case—' "'In that case,' repeated Grobstock, breathlessly, "'on the condition that I am to have the appointment permanently, of course.' "'Of course,' echoed Grobstock eagerly. "'Because, you see,' Manasseh condescended to explain, "'it hurts one's reputation to lose a client.' "'Yes, yes, naturally,' said Grobstock soothingly. "'I quite understand.' Then, feeling himself slipping into further embarrassments, he added timidly, of course, they will not always be so good as the first lot, because— Say no more, Manasseh interrupted reassuringly. I will come at once and fetch them. No, no, I will send them, 
cried Grobstock, horrified afresh. "'I should not dream of permitting it. What? Shall I put you to all that trouble which should rightly be mine? I will go at once. The matter shall be settled without delay. I promise you, as it is written, I made haste and delayed not. Follow me.' Grobstock suppressed a groan. Here had all his manoeuvring landed him in a worse plight than ever. He would have to present Manasseh to the livery servant without even that clean face which might unreasonably have been expected for the Sabbath. Despite the text quoted by the erudite Schnorrer, he strove to put off that evil hour. "'Had you not better take the salmon home to your wife first? said he. "'My duty is to enable you to complete your good deed at once. My wife is unaware of the salmon. She is in no suspense.' Even as the Schnorrer spake, it flashed upon Grobstock that Manasseh was more presentable with the salmon than without it, in fact that the salmon was the salvation of the situation. When Grobstock brought fish he often hired a man to carry home the spoil. Manasseh would have all the air of such a loafer. Who would suspect that the fish, and even the bag, belonged to the porter, though purchased with the gentleman's money? Grobstock silently thanked Providence for the ingenious way in which it had contrived to save his self-respect. As a mere fish-carrier, Manasseh would attract no second glance from the household. Once safely in, it would be comparatively easy to smuggle him out, and when he did come on Friday night it would be in the metamorphosing glories of a body-coat and with his unspeakable undergarment tucked into a shirt, and his turban knotted into a cocked hat. They emerged into Allgate, and then turned down Lehman Street, a fashionable quarter, and so into Great Prescott Street. At the critical street corner Grobstock's composure began to desert him. He took out his handsomely ornamented snuff-box, and administered himself a mighty pinch. It did him good, and he walked on and was well-nigh arrived at his own door when Manasseh suddenly caught him by a coat-button. "'Stand still a second, he cried imperatively. "'What is it?' murmured Grobstock in alarm. "'You have spilt snuff all down your coat-front,' Manasseh replied severely. "'Hold the bag a minute while I brush it off.' Joseph obeyed, and Manasseh scrupulously removed every particle with such patience that Grobstock's was exhausted. "'Thank you,' he said at last, as politely as he could. "'That will do.' "'No, it will not do,' replied Manasseh. "'I cannot have my coat spoiled. By the time it comes down to me it will be a mass of stains if you don't look after it.' "'Oh, is that why you took so much trouble?' said Grobstock, with an uneasy laugh. "'Why else? Do you take me for a beadle? A brusher of gaiters?" inquired Manasseh haughtingly. "'There, now. That is the cleanest I can get it. You would escape those droppings if you held your snuff-box so.' Manasseh gently took the snuff-box and began to explain, walking on a few paces. "'Ah, we are at home,' he cried, breaking off the object lesson suddenly. He pushed open the gate, ran up the steps of the mansion, and knocked thunderously, then snuffed himself magnificently from the bejewelled snuff-box. Behind came Joseph Grobstock, slouching limply. 
and carrying Manasseh de Costa's fish. End of chapter 1